the Spring Forth Podcast, a ministry of the First Congregational Church of McGregor, Iowa. This recording has been made for August 2nd, 2020, the ninth Sunday of Pentecost. Good morning. I 
have very few, almost zero announcements, except that Steve Milligan is officially retired. He, he's, he is radiating, <laughs> basking in the glory of not having to be anywhere. <laughs> the call to worship comes to us from a psalm. Hear a just cause, O Lord, to attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From you, let my vindication come. Let your eyes see the right. If you try my heart, if you visit me by night, if you test me, you will find no wickedness in me. My mouth does not transgress. And as for what others do, by the word of your lips I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you to answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Let us pray. Beloved, gracious, merciful God, let your continual mercy, O Lord, cleanse and defend your church. And because it cannot continue in safety without your help, protect and govern it always by your goodness. We ask these things in the name of he who saves and redeems us, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. As we move along in the Gospel of Matthew, we find ourselves moving from the parables where Jesus is talking about metaphors of the kingdom of God or parables of sowers or parables of wheat and weeds. And we now find a passage that we have this morning, Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. Jesus has just heard the news that his friend and whom he considers to be the greatest prophet, John the Baptist, has been executed. The news falls heavy on Jesus, and he does what any one of us would do if we were trying to collect ourselves from some grievous news. He tries to find solitude. He tries to sequester himself off where he might be able to just wrestle with this information and realize that the burden of leading God's people now falls squarely and solely upon him. The work of John the Baptist has been completed. But knowing Jesus and knowing the charisma and the character that he has built around himself, he, it's not an easy task for him to go and find solitude. The crowds find him, and in right fashion, he ministers to them. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew there from a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away that they may go into the villages 
to buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. All ate and were filled. They took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of the Holy Gospel. Let us pray. We come before you this morning, Lord, as is our custom on the day of worship, to meet you where we are at, for you are always around. You surround us, and there are times when we can glimpse and feel your presence so clearly. We want this moment, this time, to be part of that experience. That as we meditate upon your word, listen to your hymns of praise and partake of the sacraments that we can feel the closeness with you. That we recognize and are reminded again that you still look with compassion upon us, that you still minister to us, that you tend to our every need. And in doing so, you empower us that we may do likewise taking this experience of fullness that you make possible into the world. And we keep it in the world where it may continue to generate the impression that the spirit is alive and moving amongst us. For this time that you have given us and for the many moments that we take to spend with you, we ask that you would continue to speak to us your words of truth. Help us to fight off the temptation to remain idle in the face of spiritual commitments as we venture forth to serve this world. Let us not forget that it's far vast than we sometimes like to admit. In any event, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be an offering to you. May you always bless, keep, and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus hears the news that his friend John the Baptist has been killed. We know that John the Baptist was a man who made no distinctions between great individuals of great status and individuals of, shall we say, little or meager means, John the Baptist realized that the kingdom of God was at hand and that the people needed to get themselves and get their minds right to receive the Messiah. So John presented himself with all authority. But in part of that scuffle of John presenting himself in sort of raw truth, he ran afoul with the powers that be, 
King Herod's wife, had little regard for John the Baptist, found him offensive because John had preached some things about the household of the king that didn't set well with her, namely that Herod should not have married his brother's wife. So she had it in for John early on and found a way to see to it that his days were going to be short. Now Herod knew this, but Herod found John the Baptist to be a man that he respected. He counted him as a prophet. So he figured, okay, I can protect John. I can protect him by, I'll imprison him. I'll have him under watch of guard. And in doing so, I can keep him safe that way. You know, if he were out and about, there could be assassins, there could be villains that could come and take John's life. But if he is in my prison, underneath the watch of my guards, what harm can come to the man? He might not be able to, to preach and proclaim, but at least he'll have his life. Well, Herodias was clever. And the king had a party one night, a vast celebration, you know, just an opportunity to get together. They didn't have to worry about social distancing then. So the king's like, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have a party. I wanna have a throwdown. And the queen had a daughter the king considered fair. You can read what you want into that. Might have been something shady going on there. John the Baptist was probably hip to that as well. Anyway, he wanted his daughter to dance for the crowd, a gift. He's like, because, my, because I'm so loving of a king, I'm going to have my daughter come and do a dance for you. And she danced, and the king was enthralled. And he says, child, I will give you whatever you ask, even to the half of my kingdom, which was a bit over the top, right? This is, this is his daughter, after all, we're talking about. Well, the girl went to her mother and says, the king says he'll give me whatever he wants for the dance. He liked the dance. Obviously, I've got the moves. What shall I ask for? And the mother's like, I, I know what you're going to ask for. <laughs> you're going to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. It's my second choice, but um, she did. She went in there and she says, this is what I want. And the king's there in front of, he's given his word. He's there in front of his people. He can't go back on his word now. And unfortunately, he had to send word to his guards to go and dispatch poor John the Baptist, whose only task in life was to get us a little bit closer to the reality of the Messiah. Jesus hears this word. This is where we find Jesus in this morning's gospel. We find him just now hearing the word that his friend his beloved prophet has been killed. So Jesus needs some time to get his mind right because now he knows that he is truly all alone. That God's last final messenger, the great John the Baptist, has been laid low by a, ensnared by a foul plan to take his life. And Jesus just needs to grieve. 
He doesn't want to have to deal with crowds and disciples. He doesn't want to have to tell stories right now. He doesn't want to have to explain anything. He just wants to grieve as we would like to grieve when we too receive bad news. We want to go someplace where we will be undisturbed. We want to switch off phones and turn off machines and quiet ourselves and quiet our minds and be with the grief that is real. So Jesus goes to a deserted place, he, which of course in the first century Palestine, there are plenty of deserted places. So he takes himself to a deserted place in order that he might just pray and think and try to redirect himself. But because Jesus was a charismatic figure, because he was opening the eyes of those literally born blind, but also those who were spiritually blind, the people followed him. Wherever he went, he could get no peace. They would find him. And this situation was no different. There he is, sailing across in a boat to a deserted place. And the people get in their boats, and they come and follow him. And we can find out by the end of this passage, this was no small, this was not like, you know, maybe 20, 30 close friends. This was over 5,000 people. 5,000 men, and women and children, some scholars say, 15 to 20,000 people. I mean, so much that you could almost hear the roar of them coming as they're rowing across the lake to get to the man. I mean, you could just, it's like, what is the sound of that storm? That's right, it's a multitude of people coming to me. Now, were they coming to support him in his grief? Were they coming to console him? Were they coming to say, Jesus, we heard about the news of John the Baptist, and we know that you two were close, and we know that he was important to you, and we just want to say, we've got your back. We just want to say how sorry we were and what a wonderful man he was. They were not coming to pay their respects for the death of John the Baptist, as we might suppose. They were coming because they had need, and Jesus was the man who could fill those needs. So they find him where he's at, and he looks upon this crowd, this vast ragtag group of individuals who cobbled just enough energy together to be with him. Some traveling from great distances, leaving towns and villages, traveling on foot, traveling by pack animal, using borrowed boats, stolen boats, so they could sail across the tired, huddled masses, yearning to be free, so they show up, and Jesus is there, and he looks upon them, and he has compassion. He, is, he doesn't have time to grieve anymore. He is now pulled from his doldrums. He is now wrestled away from his mind being fixated upon John's death, and he now has to realize these are the individuals that John prepared for me. These were the individuals who came out to hear John by the Jordan. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. They came out to hear John. They came out to hear John say, bear fruit worthy of repentance. I baptize you with water, but the one who will come after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So Jesus is looking upon these individuals and he's like, John, these are our people. I can't turn away now. He has compassion for them. He sees them in their miserable circumstance and it hits him like a gut punch. Boom! He realizes the gravity of a broken humanity. 
See, that's something that was really unique and special about Jesus is that he could look at a situation. He could assess a situation and he could read it correctly. And he realized that these individuals have labored hard to get close to the truth that he is representing. And he's not going to turn them away. As much as he has his own needs, as much as he has his own concerns, as much as he is pressing to deal with his own grief, he has to attend to the individual's who have arrived. So what does he do? After he feels that compassion, he begins to heal their sick. And everything that, that entails, laying hands upon them, saying prayers, opening the eyes. You can only imagine the barrage of individuals who came in their afflictions. Some were, some were ill, some were, were lame, some were blind, some were being carried by others. You could just imagine the teeming masses of individuals and Jesus is trying to create some sort of a triage so he can attend to all the multitude of individuals who are coming with their infirmities, holding their arms, holding their brows, dragging their legs. They're like, Jesus, please have mercy on us. See us, notice us, attend to us because we know that you can do these things. We know that you represent the living, breathing will of God. You are alive. And we want to be alive. We need what you have. So he attends to their sick, and you can imagine that this would take the expanse of the day because of the sheer volume of people, the sheer volume of people. And even though he's got the power of God coursing through him, it is exhausting. It is exhausting to attend to all of these individuals and their many assorted needs and every single one of them just wants an audience with you. And although he can heal with a word, it still takes time to attend to the many who are lining up. So the day starts to get late, as every day does. If you spend enough time in the course of the day, it gets late. His disciples are concerned. They've seen all the work that he's been doing. Perhaps maybe they've done some heavy lifting as well. Sort of, you know, please line up in an orderly fashion. He'll get to you. Line up in an orderly fashion. Don't push. No shoving. Just be cool. We will get to you. Blind on this side. Deaf and mute over here. We will try to create some sort of an orderly system. Jesus, the master will attend to you in time. But now it's getting late, and the disciples are starting to think about more practical matters like, we need to eat. <laughs> we need to eat. Those people need to eat. We've been out here healing all day. It's hot. It's, we're tired. We're hungry. We're hangry. We need to, come on, let's, let's get them moving on. So they turn to Jesus with a very practical suggestion. Jesus it's getting late. We're in a deserted place. You need to dismiss the crowds. They won't listen to us. You need to dismiss the crowds so they can go back to the neighboring towns and villages and find some food and prepare to bed down for the evening. And this is where, that, this, is where this, this passage this morning really heats up. See, we've already thought that there's an incredible thing that's been taking place. First of all, Jesus putting his grief on hold in order to attend to the crowd. And that's impressive. That's impressive. But this is the Son of God that we're talking about. So maybe there's some part of us that's sort of through being impressed by the incredible miracles that Jesus can do and his sheer capacity to be able to attend to, to human beings because, after all, he's got 
the force of heaven coursing through him. But the incredible thing that's about ready to happen is his response to his disciples who were like, come on, send these people away. Send, send, send them away. They won't leave unless you tell them, and there's too many of them here. And I know that they've got to be hungry too. And Jesus turns to them and says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now, that's almost like a throwaway line. When we read that in church, when I read that in church, it's just, you know, it's like, oh, we're just reading about the feeding of the multitude. And, and it seems like a throwaway line that Jesus turns to his disciples and says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. But this is where, this is the catalyst verse of this passage. The catalyst verse of this passage is that Jesus says, have you missed my example? Have you missed what I have been doing all this time? What have I been doing? I have been serving. What have I been doing? I have been attending. What have I been doing all of this time? I have been giving of what I have to those who need it most. And now you want me to just dismiss them for something as basic as food? Something as elementary as being able to find nourishment? He's like, no, that's, that's something that we can take care of. See, the disciples are looking at that as a stumbling block. They've watched Jesus heal a multitude of all kinds of infirmities, which Matthew doesn't even go into detail, but you can imagine what problems they may have had. Not just the odd scratch or something, but some of these people were really jacked up. And they came to Jesus, and he, and he, and he mended them. And now the disciples are concerned about something like food, basic necessity, and Jesus is like, you think that's an impediment for me? I want to teach you something. You give them something to eat. And then that's when they sort of become self-aware. They go, we, we don't have enough. Scarcity thinking, scarcity thinking. This originated with those disciples who were in the presence of the man, the son of God. They were in the presence of the reality of God, and yet they had scarcity thinking. We don't have enough resources. We can't do this. How many a tiny church says, well, we can't make much of an impact because we only have just a small congregation, and it's an elderly congregation, and they're all living on fixed incomes, and they just, you know, they just, we, don't ask too much of us. We just like to get together and just see one another occasionally and drink a little coffee and reminisce about the old days. And don't, 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 don't press us too hard because we can't, we can't be those people. And that's, this is, this is the response of the disciples. The disciples are like, we don't have enough. Jesus is like, well, what do we have? Just a few loaves and some fish. Just enough for us. You know how Peter likes to eat. And we don't even know if it's enough for him. So there's that sense where they have the scarcity thinking. They're, they're panicked. They're looking out over the multitude, and they're like, there's just no way that five loaves and two fish are going to take care of. It's not going to make a dent in this crowd. It's not going to make a dent. Jesus, you're talking crazy talk. And Jesus says, bring them to me. Now, the miracle, this miracle that's been, that's been presented here in this passage and also in Luke is something that's it's not hotly debated, but scholars have sort of started to unpack this a little bit to make it a little bit more palatable and accessible for those of us in the modern world. And I don't think it takes away from the story, but I think what it does is it demonstrates to us a certain element about human behavior. The disciples have scarcity thinking. It's not that they don't have food. It's just that they have 
Just enough food. Remember back in the day when you were in school and you have a birthday party and you want to celebrate with the birthday party, but you got to bring enough for the whole class? I mean, that became sort of like a, 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 a line where it's like, make sure you bring enough for the whole class. I had a third grade teacher who says, it's okay to chew gum so long as you bring enough. The kids would show up like whole packs of juicy fruit. They're like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chew. And be like, we'd be chewing happy in class and chewing because we brought enough for the whole class. And she's like, and I don't want it on my floor, and I don't want it on my chair, and I don't want it in anyone's hair. She goes, well, you can chew it out. And she goes, and I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. You can have happy jaws, but keep the gum in your mouth. But that license that she gave us, that because there would be enough for all, we could do the one thing that we wanted to do. So, so there were kids who opted out. They're like, I don't chew gum. It's against my religion. Or whatever it was, that's fine. But for those who wanted to chew, we chewed happily. And I felt like somehow it just added a whole different dimension to learning multiplication tables. I'm like, all of a sudden, math became fun. You know, when your little mouth is doing something, you're like, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> and that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is like, look, let's take away the scarcity thinking of the disciples saying, we only have enough for us. You know, we only brought enough for us. So the miracle is that Jesus says, bring the food to me. First of all, release the food. Release the food to me. Lifts up to heaven, takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, begins dividing it. Now, the scholars say the miracle, and you can debate this miracle. For some of you if, you, if you need to believe that the miracle is that Jesus took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 from five loaves, great. But the scholars tell us that what happened is, is that when Jesus took the, took the resources from the disciples, blessed it, and began to divide it freely, other people who had traveled started to share of their stores of food. He broke up the scarcity thinking of the, of the entire multitude. Well, you think people are going to really turn out and head out into the desert and see Jesus and not have a couple of snack bars with them? Not have a couple of some, 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 tra some traveling food? Anytime we're going to make a road trip, anytime we're going to sort of go out and be away from, from store, we stock up. We stock up. On the weekend, people load up their coolers because they know they're going to be out on the river, they're going to be out at their campsite, and, you know, they're going to get a little peckish somewhere in the midst of the day, and they want to be like, hey, we, we got anything to eat. Uh, that, what, what do you mean? That, that was your job. You were supposed to pack the cooler. <laughs> Cooler's back in the garage. So... The scholars say people who turned out had resources with them, but they were thinking like the disciples were thinking. This is just, this is mine. This is for my family. I, you know, if I get this thing out, I could be mauled. I could be jumped over my bread. So the miracle was is that Jesus says, hey, it's okay. We can share. So people start kind of getting a little bit of their food out and maybe somebody over here has got five loaves and maybe somebody else got seven loaves and the disciples have five loaves and two fish and maybe this person over here has got three fish. Maybe that person over there has got a whole basket full of fish and they're just trying to hide but the flies are kind of giving them up. And so there's a sense in which all of a sudden this multitude, everyone is now sharing what they have in common because Jesus has made, he has changed the atmosphere, he has changed the thinking, he has changed the understanding that we are not isolated individuals who are warring and battling against everyone else, defending our territory. Jesus has melted those boundaries away, right? He didn't say, I will heal some of you. 
I will heal those of you who meet these prerequisites. I will heal all of you. And I don't need to send you away to feed you because I know that what you need to do is have your minds unlocked. You give them something to eat says, let us no longer think of individuals of being, well, you're not part of my family. You're not part of my tribe. You're not part of my associates. So therefore, what I have is for me and mine. And you're on the outs. So Jesus broke up that thinking. This is, this is how scholars sort of present the reading of this, that the true miracle is, is that everyone shared evenly and freely of what they had, making no distinctions. And then they, they truly became a family. So when, the, so when the leftover food was gathered, it was 12 baskets full. Now, I like that. I like when interpretations of the gospel can help us demystify, in a way, the text without losing the power of the text. Because what, really, what, what miracle is it that you need? The miracle that Jesus took five loaves and two fish and actually magically turned them into 12 baskets full to feed a multitude of 15,000 people? Or is the true miracle that Jesus melted the hearts of otherwise selfish people? Because to me, the melting of the hearts of selfish people is a very powerful miracle indeed. In fact, that's a much more useful miracle for me at this time in my life and this place in the world than having magic loaves. Because if you have magic loaves like an illusion, a David Copperfield trick where he takes five loaves and two fish and turns it into enough to serve the entire audience in Las Vegas, everyone's like, that's a pretty neat trick. But I still don't like the fact that I had to pay $150 for these tickets. <laughs> but there's that sense in which if the true miracle is that God takes an, takes an individual who is closed up, who is angry, who has just received a blessing, who has just received a healing, who has just had their eyes opened or their, their limbs strengthened or their scaly leprosy abated, somebody who has just had the living, breathing miracle, and then they want to get stingy with the food. So the true miracle is that Jesus opened the hearts of his disciples and everyone who gathered there. And they, they took their fists and they went, oh, 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 okay, I, I guess I can kind of loosen my grip a little bit because I'm not going to go hungry. And everyone else was able to eat their full. They said they, they ate until they were stuffed full. Think of your last holiday meal, your last significant holiday meal, where the way that you honor the host is to eat your fill. You pay for it later. You do. But, but at the moment, you're like, this is how I'm showing my gratitude. I'm going to eat my fill. And you, you know, you know, one of them numbers, you're like, ooh, ooh, you know, a couple of clicks on the belt. And that's what they did. They showed gratitude. What does this mean for us? Well, it's no different. It's no different for us because we too have the mandate to give something to someone else, to empower somebody else, to set them free by serving them. This is a mandate and a call to service. That's what Jesus does for his disciples. The disciples say, let them go and fend for themselves. 
Let them go and shop for their food. Let them go and do this. Jesus is like, no, all they need is an attitude shift. All they need to do is to see individuals not as being distinct, but as being part of them, part of the great network of creation. And when we can do that, when we can make that shift, all of a sudden we are no longer in opposition. We can see one another as partners and not as opponents. Partners, not opponents. If we see ourselves in opposition to individuals, we will never want to give them even our leftovers. We will never want to, to even, we won't even want to give them static. We won't even want to give them grief because they are so in opposition to us that we don't even, we don't even have time to berate them. That's how insignificant the people on the opposition side have become to us. Like, I'm not even going to credit you with the benefit of thinking about you. And Jesus wants to dispel. That's, that's the sickness that he truly wants to heal, the sickness of exclusion, the sickness of exclusion. That's what he wants to take out of us. He wants to, he wants to root and mine that out of us. And he's like, you are thinking exclusive thoughts. You are thinking thoughts only of yourself. You're only thinking of your own immediate needs. You're not thinking of the, the vast needs of everyone here. He goes, what's the best way to end this gathering? This, this, this wonderful healing that's taking place, the best way to end that is to break bread together. And you want to scatter them? They've all had their lives transformed. They've, they've had incredible healing, and now you want to just send them off? No, now we, now we have the great banquet. Now we have the great feast. You give them something to eat, and they go, well, we don't know how. Jesus is like, I will show you how. Give me what you have. Let's start sharing it. I told a story, well, I tell lots of stories, but I told a story when I was a school chaplain. It was my job not only to do worship services for the students, but at the beginning of the school year, at the very beginning of the school year, I had to do a chapel just for the faculty. And one of the stories I used was the feeding of the 5,000, but I told a story where I called the sharing of the Kit Kat. And the sharing of the Kit Kat is a really very basic story. Some buddies of mine, decided to head out on our, on our little BMX bicycles and go and ride around a, a neighboring lake. And it was uh, some distance from our home. So it was, a, it was a pretty good few hours ride to get there. And we rode and we loved riding around this lake because it had nice little trails and wooded trails and stuff. And, and during the course of our ride, we kind of got a little, you know, sugar crashed. <laughs> Bubble gum was wearing off. And one of the guys goes, man, I am hungry. I said, yeah, I, I, I kind of am too. And so three of the guys were kind of bellyaching. There were four of us. And three of the guys were kind of bellyaching about how being hungry was. But the fourth guy was like real quiet. Like, he was like, like he didn't want to play the I'm hungry or I'm not hungry game. And we said, hey, what's going on? How come, aren't you hungry? He's like, he was kind of like, you know, like, oh, is that a sparrow? Or that a chickadee? What? And I was like, oh, okay, what's up? I said, what's going on here? What are you, what are you hiding? He says, well, I, I didn't want to tell you guys, but I got a Kit Kat. He's like, you got a Kit Kat? He said, man, you better get him off that Kit Kat. Otherwise, we'll be one less in our party. <laughs> and he says, well, he goes, it's not one of them big ones. He goes, it's just a small one. I said, well, there's four of us. I said, Kit Kats break into four. I said, break us off a quarter of that Kit Kat. And he got it out. 
half melted sorry Kit Kat never put a Kit Kat in your pocket and then go ride a bike around for on a hot day just don't do it do not do it friends you know I'm telling you as a friend you don't, you don't want an all day in your back pocket Kit Kat but we were hungry and sometimes when you know desperate measures call for desperate measures or whatever the saying is so he got the Kit Kat out and peeled back the slimy paper and chocolate kind of going everywhere and we didn't care that his hands were grimy because ours were equally grimy too and he got that Kit Kat out and he broke off a little quarter of it handed it to one guy I, I felt like we were having communion I, it, it really I mean this this might have been an early childhood this man will soon become a minister I mean really because I mean, he was he was breaking it up and he was handing it to me and I just felt like this you know this Kit Kat given for you and we and we sat there and you know, Kit Kat is just a little tiny piece of candy bar. But we ate that thing as if it was a grand feast. And we sat back and leaning back on our, on our bikes, legs crossed in the bliss of the sun. And we take a little bite of that Kit Kat and savor what little bit of chocolate was still on the wafer. And we felt like gentlemen. We felt like gentlemen with top hats and canes who had just hit the biggest stock market boom you'd ever had. We just felt like somehow kings of the corner. And we ate that Kit Kat with a sense of bliss. And I think it wasn't, it wasn't the candy bar, you see. It was the hospitality. It was the fact that our friend wanted that whole Kit Kat for himself, but when he finally divvied up and gave a stick to each one of us, he realized that that was the true gift. The true gift was in the sharing. The true gift was not stinging his friends, who had given him so much other pleasures and probably had given him countless other snacks at various times, but that moment right there wasn't about the Kit Kat, it was about the solidarity. And somehow it was like miracle food for us because we rode several more hours before we went home to get proper meals. And I remember that story, so that's the story that I, that I, that I preached to the, to the teachers. And of course, at the end, they all wanted Kit Kats. I said, did you hear the story? They said, yeah, we, we want some Kit Kat. In fact, one of the teachers went and got me a big pack of Kit Kats and left them at my office door the next day. They go, the man likes Kit Kats. But the Kit Kat gospel is based upon the understanding that it is the change of heart, the change of mind. That's the true miracle. The true miracle is that the individuals went from thinking of themselves to thinking of the greater populace, and that's where Jesus wants to settle our minds. He wants to settle our minds not on what's in it for us, but what can we do for the greater congregation. Amen.
Let us pray. Lord, you, you do some pretty exciting things, some wonderful things, and I, I really appreciate the way that you can help us just wander back through our own past experiences to find those stories, those narratives that work so well to remind us that our lives intersect with the gospel probably more than we'd like to admit. We think we're living such unique and varied lives, but there's really only so many variations to the human experience, and chances are somebody has been where we find ourselves before. Maybe they didn't write about it, maybe they didn't speak about it, maybe there's no record of it. But if we dig deep enough, we will find a familiarity to the stories in our own life and the stories of those that we visit with that really match the understanding of God with us. So I want to thank you for reminding us that the miracle, the true miracle, is in the transformation of hearts and minds. That those, those are what are essential. Magic lows, they don't change perspective. That makes people feel really excited to see sort of a, something that seems miraculous like that happen. I mean, it's observationally, it's pretty astounding. But when you can transform a heart that has been so set against something, when an individual can find a capacity to love and to accept and to embrace a set of concepts or individuals that they had long since been estranged from or didn't even bother to consider exists, that's the greater miracle, that's the true miracle. Help us to find that likeness, that reality of an all-consuming compassion that interrupts our daily programming and allows us to discover a new sense of self. We ask, Lord, your blessing upon those who are sick and suffering, especially those who are laboring underneath COVID-19. And those who are laboring under other illnesses, the illnesses that have been eclipsed but are still very present with us, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, infirmities of every kind, the infirmities that would, if we could, would bring us to you. They bring us to you not in the physical reality, but definitely in our spiritual reality. We come to you, our minds settle upon you in our illness, in our infirmity. We ask for your healing. We ask for your patience. We ask for your love to fall upon us, to help us to make it through this difficult patch. So have compassion on us. Have compassion on those who are not operating at peak right now. And just be gracious to them. 
Receive the prayers that we set before you today, joys and concerns. Hear them in Jesus' name. Thank you, God. Remember us as we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I invite you to open your, your communion kits as I read our church covenant. We covenant with the Lord and with one another and do bind ourselves in the presence of God to walk together in his holy ways. We will strive to be doers of the word and not hearers only, to be firm in faith, quickened in hope, and constant in charity. And we will consecrate our time, talent, substance, and influence as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. God, we know that you come to us in a variety of forms. We ask simply that you allow us to recognize the incarnation. Amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. He took bread, blessed it, offering it to them, saying, Take, indeed, this is my body given for you. Together they shared the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant, Christ's blood shed for the remission of sins. As often as we do eat of this bread and drink from this cup, we do claim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us take the cup of salvation. Thank you, God, for your mercies, for your forgiveness, for your life-giving word for a new perspective on a text that we have heard dozens of times before, and for the opportunity to serve you. That's, that's the greatest gift, is that you set us free, that we can go forth and serve you and bring that new perspective and that new reality into a hurting world. Help us to attend to the needs of those that we come into contact with. Help us to hear those who need to be heard. Pray for those who need prayers, comfort those who need comfort, and to serve. To serve and to share our wisdom and the fullness of our being with those who are feeling so depleted. And help us to do these things and to observe them with the safety that is needed given the nature of our current moment. But be the defining force as you continue to teach us how to give others something to eat. Amen.
Please rise for the blessing. May the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you now and always. May it keep you and guide you in peace and strengthen you as you go forth to love, to serve, to support. In Jesus' name. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. God bless.